Pastor John here. I hope you're enjoying our new series, Lessons for Today from the OT, as much as I am in preparing for it. Today's sermon comes from one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. It's the story of Jephthah from Judges 10 and 11. We're going to pose a question, then state a truth. Two propositions that will reveal something about God that you and I need to know. Let's join the service, but please stay tuned in for a short message afterwards. A very blessed welcome and happy Sunday, the first week of spring already. Here from Warrington Bible Fellowship in Warrington, Virginia, I am Jimmy Carter, and as he used to say, you're not, if you remember a long, long time ago when he was running for the presidency. God bless, defend, and keep us now in these few moments as we seek to worship Him in what we sing and what we say. And again, we'll engage in that ancient, ancient Christian tradition of announcements. And remember, one of my favorite products, and Kelly, I just love it when you put color in the Friday forecast. Look at all the color in this. Can you guys just look at all that color? Pretty soon she's going to be out of color ink. I don't know. But anyway, if you are uh, on our mailing list at Warrington Bible Fellowship, you will receive this in your email. Plus, you're going to get the Monday Minutes. So, yeah. Yes, how about that? So we have several announcements today, and they are in the Monday Minutes and the Friday Forecast. Uh, but some of the big things that we like to hit and remind you of this morning is that the Warrington Gospel Partnership of which we are happy members on April 13th at 7 o'clock at the Dayspring Mennonite Church on Route 28. It's on the right side as you're going south. There's going to be a Seder demonstration. So um, the facilitator is actually going to demonstrate a Seder meter to you, a meal to you and me. We're not going to eat a Seder meal, but they're going to demonstrate the Seder meal. They're going to go through every element of what we would call the Passover meal and explain to us what each element means. And now each of those elements then reminds us of who Jesus is and the work that he did. It's an amazing thing that the ancient Passover meal would have so many obvious components in it that relate to the work and the salvation that Jesus offers us. So that's going to be on 13 April at 7 p.m. at Dayspring Mennonite Church. Right there it is. We're going to have an Easter Eve service uh, in uh, Everwalker Park at 7 p.m. And that would be, what would that be? Easter Eve, that is correct. <clears throat> Some of us like opening our presents on Easter Eve. Some wait till Easter morning. But you'll be there Easter Eve at 7 p.m. for the Easter Eve service in Everwalker Park. And then we're going to have a combined uh, service with our brothers and sisters at Veritas church and that will be on easter day at 10 a.m one service we're excited about having an overflow plan isn't that neat that the saints will gather for the sake at at the easter eve service or for easter easter morning we're going to have so many brothers and sisters in here we'll have to stack each other isn't that cool that means that our personal space is going to have to shrink right no more 40 inches. It's going to be right down to four inches and we'll be shoulder to shoulder for the sake of our God and King. Alleluia, as we say. Now, any other announcements from the body of Christ that we should speak to or talk about? Ooh, ooh, ooh. And there it is. International potluck today. That means we're not just putting dishes made in different countries that are empty on the table. It's going to be food on the dishes 
and the food will be representative of those different countries. As a matter of fact, I heard a rumor that there will be a Greek salad, and you and I aren't going to think it's Greek, but it really, really is. How about that? Not a shred of lettuce in there, but it's going to be a real Greek salad. So that's after the service today. Please come downstairs and thank the men who had to set the tables up kind of quickly this, this, after, this morning. Thank you so much for doing that, brothers. So now, another ancient Christian tradition, and that would be prayer, right? As we speak to the one true God who is among us, that's his promise, right? Where two or more are gathered, we are there also. But one more thing. John, don't get too mad at me. Two weeks ago... The lovely Miss Susie, my lovely and vivacious wife, was stuck in Orlando, Florida. She'd gone down to visit her mom. The ice storm had interrupted flights northeastbound, basically from Baltimore to Boston. Everything was kind of cracking when it came to ice storm and schedules. And she called me. She was a little discouraged. We were right here in church. She wasn't going to get home. As a matter of fact, the gate agent said, you might not get home till Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. Oh, man. And you could hear the discouragement in her voice. So John just took a couple of us right back there by the radiator. And we prayed that Susan would get home that day. It was against all odds. You know how airlines are when things start to tumble. It's a domino effect. Well, she got home that night five hours late. Now, you and I have a choice here, don't we? Oh, Jimmy, she was going to get home anyway. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. Or did our God and King intervene by name in one of those moments in the life where you would really like something done for for the life you're living, but he intervened. So we have a choice to make. Was it just circumstance, or did our king intervene? Same evidence, right? But we can choose as to who we want to give that credit to. And I'm going to choose to give that credit to God, that he actually did something out of the ordinary to get Susan home, which was important for her to be home that week also. So Mighty One, with these things in mind, we pray to you, and offer ourselves to you because you are the creator of everything, everywhere, and all the time. We worship you as the one true and only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three co-equal, co-eternal persons, one God, amen, and we now bring ourselves to you in a place where you have established for us the privilege and the right to praise you in song and in word. We know there are those among us who are suffering, who are frightened, who are uh, under stress, Bring their minds, bring their uh, faces to our hearts and minds that we might pray for them and act on your behalf as your agents of comfort for them. Would you do these things to honor yourself before us? Would you inhabit our praise so that in all things we might be called your people and this place, your place, and that we might go from here today after being charged by your wonderful presence into the world that you have given us for the work that we do for your sake. Hear these things, mighty one, in the name of your blessed Son, who is Jesus Christ. We pray together, saying, Amen. Let's worship in song. Yes, would you please rise, and we're going to sing the doxology. It's been a long time since we've done that. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.
Come praise and glorify our God, the Father of our Lord. In Christ he has in heavenly realms his blessings on us poured. For pure and blameless in his sight, he destined us to be. And now we've been adopted through his Son eternally. To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who Come praise and glorify our God who gives his grace in Christ. In him our sins are washed away, redeemed through sacrifice. In him God has made known to us the mystery of his will, that Christ should be the head of all his purpose to fulfill. To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. Come praise and glorify our God, for we believe the word, and through our faith we have a seal, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit guarantees until redemption's done until we join in endless grace to God the three in one to the praise of your glory to the praise of your mercy and grace to the praise of your glory you are the God to praise to the praise of your glory to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. You are the God. You are the God who saves. You are the God. You are the God who saves.
my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, when victory is won, may I reach heaven's joys, oh
refer to him as my Jesus. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty My comfort, my shelter, tower of refuge and strength, let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing, power praise to the king mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name I sing for joy at the work of your hands forever I love you forever I'll stand nothing compares to the promise I Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My comfort, my shelter, tower of refuge and let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to the King. Mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name i sing for joy at the work of your hands forever i love you forever i'll stand nothing compares to the promise i have in you shout to the lord shout to the lord all the earth let us sing hallelujah power and majesty praise to the king come on mountains mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name i sing for joy at the work of your hands forever i love you forever i'll stand and nothing compares to the promise i have no nothing compares to the promise i have no nothing compares to the promise i have in you 
God that you are with your amazing grace. We heard the testimony of Susie and Jimmy, Lord, and we each have our stories of how you have overcome during this week. And we each have our struggles, Lord, that we're still placing into your hands and asking you to be God for us. We don't want to be God. Lord, we bless you. You are the only one worthy of honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's sermon uh, deals with oaths and promises. And the writer of Hebrews talks about the perfect maker of oaths and the keeper of promises. This is Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, is that you? That's me. This writer of Hebrews was writing across time. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We'll continue worship this morning with uh, the weekly and regular opportunity for you and I to reinvest that which God has given us back into his kingdom. Sometimes this can be a touchy subject, but let me tell you something. I was stunned this week when I thought about this question to myself. Jimmy, when's the last time you made a decision because you thought it would please God? I mean, deliberately thinking about that. Well, this is one of those opportunities the Lord provides us, that we know it pleases Him, that we would live on a margin intentionally, that we would pull back from those things we might want to purchase or want to own for the sake of His kingdom. It pleases Him. We know that Scripture teaches us that. That part of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the unified idea that God's creation reflects his nature his attributes and character and that you and I as image bearers then do that as we act like he acts because he invested in you and me did he not so expects us then as reflectors of his glory to reinvest back into the kingdom that he has established here on the earth remember there is an usurper among us there is one who is not worthy to rule the prince of the power of the air And as you and I commit our time, talent, and treasure by tithe or by offerings back into the kingdom of God, we are helping to minimize and finally defeat that enemy to the glory of our God and King, who is triune. So yes, each week we will make a deliberate effort and remind ourselves that that which God has given to you and I by our time, talent, and treasure 
He expects us to reinvest because that's what He is doing to us. He wants us to be more like His Son, the right man. So again, we have opportunities here at Warrington Bible Fellowship. You can place a contribution or tithe or an offering in the boxes that are along the back. You can mail them in to Winchester Street or you can, you can actually make your offering online. So let's pray then again, shall we? And be reminded of the breathtaking opportunity that God gives you and I when it comes to investment in His kingdom. Because remember, that investment is going to go to a place where there is no rust, there is no moth-eaten, there is no theft. Because God keeps that for the glory of His own kingdom. Pray with me, will you? Holy One, who are we that we would even have the privilege to say your name? but to know that you've adopted us as sons and daughters, not brought us into your kingdom as employees, but as treasured children. Father, may this lighten our hearts and brighten our minds, and may we then be really a good, clean straw for you just to pour yourself through and splash onto others around us. And may part of that work be our intentional offering of our time and talent and treasure back to you that you might train us to be more like your son Jesus, the good and right man. Hear these things, Father, because you are faithful to us and teaching us to be faithful to you. All of these things prayed in the name of Jesus Christ, our champion and hero forever, saying together, Amen. It's time for catechism. Remember what catechism is, kids? It's a question and answer format by which you and I learn, relearn, and relearn one week at a time those things that are critical to us as followers of Jesus Christ. And we like to use the children's response. Why? Because we're all kids when it comes to God's kingdom, right? So today's question is, and if you'll notice in the past few weeks, we've been talking about the Redeemer. And Brother John Sellers, two weeks ago, told us what deem and redeem meant. Remember that? Initially, we had been deemed worthy to be in God's kingdom. Then our protypic mom and dad, Adam and Eve, fell away in treason against him. Remember, treason is a capital offense. That's why it's a death penalty. They, they, they were traitors to the one true God. They fell away, and now we inherit that, that ultimate dot, uh, virus and disease called sin. So this week, we're going to ask the question. Ready? Why must the Redeemer be truly God? You want to think about that for a minute? Because the answer says that because of His divine nature, His obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. Man, that's a really great answer. That's a kid's answer too. Wow, wow. But here's what is really going on. There are two realms, aren't there? There's a heavenly realm and there's an earthly realm. Therefore, our representative... Jesus of Nazareth must be of both realms. He has to be a real human being. We say that this way, that Jesus is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, human. And yet he is also holy, H-O-L-Y, God, simultaneously. So he's two what's, divine nature and human nature, in one who. And that qualifies him to know what it's like to be a real human being. He knows how it is to suffer and to be cold and to be hungry and to be insulted and to be frightened. He knows it more than we know it because everything we experience, he's experienced to the arc of human experience, right? So that qualifies him to be our champion. 
But there's one more thing he has to do. He has to bear the supernatural wrath of a just God. And no human being can do that. It would crush them to obliteration. So Jesus has to be God to bear the weight of the Father's wrath. And he has to be man to identify with us. Does that make sense? Kids? So our champion has to be a real man and he has to be real God at the same time. So he has a foot in humanity with us and a foot in heaven with the Father so he can be our advocate. So simultaneously, he has to be a real man and real God so that he can be our representative and take the weight of God's fierce wrath against all of us conceived and born in this planet because we are the sons and daughters of traitors and we are also traitors. And it's only an act of God by the will of Jesus Christ and his intervention on our behalf that clears us of that crime. So there can be no reprieve offered until the crime is paid for. And either you and I pay for it, right? Or Jesus pays for us. So our scripture for today is Acts 2.24. God raised Jesus up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Because he is God-man. So the question again is, why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. Let's continue worship with today's word. From Pastor, I mean, not from, who are you? Peter Ristow, Eller Announcement, thank you. So this morning before service, um, Charles asked me, how is it with the elders? And you know what? We're really excited about what God is doing among you and among us together. And, uh, but we did make some decisions along the way. So as you all know, um, two weekends ago, we spent uh, a weekend in prayer and discussion about um, some of the things that have happened since Scott's departure the first part of this month, and, um, and we've come to the decision at this time that we will not seek to replace uh, or look for another associate pastor. So you ask, doesn't that put an awful burden on our current staff, John and Diane? And yes, it does for a season. But a lot of those responsibilities have been divided up amongst the elders and other members of the church. Um, Jimmy is taking over the responsibility of being the Connect Group facilitator. Uh, P Pastor John has uh, taken over the leadership of the Warrington Gospel Partnership and has already met with a number of other like-minded pastors who are interested in joining that effort. And we continue to pray on how we can join with Mission Christian and Veritas, other churches that share a facility on how we can better impact our community for Jesus Christ. We ask that you would join us as we uh, continue to look to the Lord as to how we can better serve you as a uh, church, uh, you as our congregation, as well as how we can serve this community and reach those that are lost for the gospel. Thanks, folks. I think we... we uh, I think we just had the opportunity to see some of the fruits of those uh, new and deeper relationships 
uh, that we're having with the churches around us. Yesterday, uh, we had a crew of people from both churches here uh, getting the place ready for Easter, all the yard work and everything. Uh, we're going to have another opportunity when we have our combined Easter service. It will be 10 o'clock. Jimmy was talking about it a little bit earlier. Mission Christian, Veritas, and WBF are going to be combined. So we're, we're really looking forward to that. And I'll tell you something. I met with the pastors at the WGP. Uh, they're excited about the fact that we're getting ready to gear everything back up. And it's been a long time since we've been able to be out in the community together, uh, being representative of the body of Christ. And uh, those opportunities are beginning to amp up. And we're going to take advantage of them. So we appreciate all the people that came in and helped us yesterday. I appreciate all the people that helped us set up for the international dinner downstairs. Um, and we're looking forward to a lot more of that. I had the opportunity to uh, preach at Veritas this morning. Uh, Zach is a great guy. Uh, he's a man of God. I've got a lot of respect for him. Uh, there's a lot of energy and excitement in that church. But he needs a break every now and then. So I'll be giving him a break from time to time, and he'll be giving me a break from time to time. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. So I'd like you to turn to the book of Judges. Judges is in which testament? Anybody know? The Old Testament. Judge, yeah. We're going to be in uh, Judges 11, verses 29 through 40. While you're turning there, you know... Um, Kelly and I were in Chicago uh, two weeks ago. Uh, I went to a little model show. You know, I've got to collect little model cars. They actually have shows for those people. And we were in there. We had a little booth set up. And uh, people were coming and going. We were having a really good time. But I got an opportunity to listen in on a conversation. Two people were standing on the other side of the table. And I, I, I was kind of eavesdropping, but I thought it was interesting because I heard the one guy say that the USA should be willing to do whatever is needed to help the people of the Ukraine. I agree with that. Amen? Okay. Some of you do. That's fantastic. <laughs> so he said we should be able to do every, any, anything we needed to do to help the people of Ukraine. And he said those people need justice. And the other guy that was standing there said, Really? He said, what does that mean? He said, well, that means we're going to have to make sacrifices. And the other guy said, what are you willing to sacrifice? The first guy said, I'm willing to sacrifice everything. And the other guy said, be careful what you promise. So I've got, I've got two propositions for you this morning. One of them is, what are you willing to sacrifice? We're going to take a look at that. And the other is a caution to be very careful what you promise. And I'll tell you why you need to be careful what you promise. Our lesson is from the Old Testament. We've talked already about the Old Testament, why we're doing this series, uh, lessons for today from the OT. Um, you know, if we cut out the Old Testament, if we minimize it, if we think that it's just a history book, that there's really nothing for us there, we've cut out two-thirds of the Bible. And if we're going to understand the character and nature of God, we need to understand the whole Bible. Uh, and if we also read the whole Bible, we will find out that the Bible's not about us. The Bible's about God. It is His self-revelation to His creation. And so when we start cutting out books that we don't like, or passages we don't like, or, or even a whole testament we don't like, uh, we're cutting out our knowledge and awareness of who God is and what this book is about. So our sermon today is Jephthah. Now, 
The two chapters that I've just mentioned to you, I've got to tell you something, they are two of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. Uh, they are very hard to read. Uh, some people would consider them agonizing. But if we understand that even in passages like this, there is something for us to learn about who God is and how He relates to His people, I think we can mine some of the truths in these passages. So we're going to take a look at Jephthah. Uh, we're going to look at three major incidents in Jephthah's life. Uh, we're going to see Jephthah's vow in verses 29 through 31. We will see Jephthah's victory in verses 32 through 33. And we will see Jephthah's vexation in 34 through 40. I hope you like all those V's lined up. Let me give you the context of what's happening here because as you know, we're not going to understand the passage unless we understand what's going on in the chapters before and the chapters after. So, in Judges 10, Israel has once again fallen away from worshiping God. They're worshiping other gods. They're dealing with the people around them. Things are in mess again. And once again, an old enemy, the Ammonites, have risen up. And they're threatening Israel. And once again, Israel realizes they're in trouble, realizes they probably made a mistake in how they're dealing with God, and they cry out to God for help. Uh, they repent, and they cry out. So the Ammonites now camp in Gilead. This is what the region looks like right here. Israel encamps at Mezpah. Uh, everyone's ready to do, to do battle, but Israel's got a problem. They don't have a leader. Now, there are judges in Israel at the time, but in this particular period, there isn't one. And so, not only do they not have a national leader, they don't have a military leader. And they know they're in trouble. They know that they're outside the blessing of God at this particular point. They've cried out to Him. God has been faithful to them, but they're not sure what's going on. They need a leader. There's a guy named Jephthah, who is a mighty warrior, the Scripture says, who lives in the area of Gilead, but he was born of a prostitute, and he was rejected by his family and by his village. So he went and moved to a village called Tob, which was northeast of, of, of Gilead. And uh, you see that on the map right here. Tob is an Aramite town. You might read Pagan. You might hear Gentile. And in Tob, he falls in with some really shady characters. He's falling in with people that don't even have good reputations in Tob. Uh, so the area he flees to is right in the middle of a heavily pagan culture, one that worships a god named Hadad Rimon. Now that's an early name for a name you might be more familiar with, which is Baal. So they're Baal worshipers. In chapter 11, realizing that Jephthah is a great warrior and they've probably offended him and sent him away, the elders of Gilead go to Tob and ask Jephthah if he will fight for them, if he'll lead them in the battle. Even though, even though he's living and consorting with pagans, they're desperate. And so they're making a move that they would not normally make. Now, Jephthah sees an advantage to this and he sees an opportunity, so he negotiates a settlement with the Gileadites. And what he says is, if I defeat the Ammonites, 
I want to become your leader. And what he's asking them to do is, if I defeat the Ammonites, I want you to make me a judge over Israel. That was the prime position in the book of Judges. So he wants to become a judge over the entire nation. Well, they're not in a position to argue with them, so they agree to do that. So now Jephthah has had this successful negotiation with the Gileadites, uh, who are representing the entire nation of Israel, and he figures, well, that worked out with them. I'm going to go talk to the Ammonites and see what we can work out. So he wants to have a settlement with them. Uh, he wants to negotiate with them. And they're not listening to reason. Jeff is literally saying, hey, we don't have to do all this fighting. We can probably come to some agreement on how this works. So he's trying diplomacy. And the Ammonites verbally reject his terms. And that brings us up to our passage today. So the first thing we're going to take a look at is this vow that Jephthah makes. This is our first incident. Verse 29. When the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So why are we going through all these towns? Why, why is this geography important? The writer of Judges wants us to feel the tension rising here. Everybody's preparing for battle. Jephthah has gone from Tob, he's gone back to Gilead, he's leading everybody, they're, they're bringing forces from all over the region, and they're getting closer and closer to the Ammonites. You can feel the tension beginning to rise here. Everybody's preparing for battle. And Jephthah has been blessed by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, the text doesn't tell us if Jephthah realizes that. But he's been blessed by the Spirit of the Lord. We know from our previous readings in the Bible, that God is going to give him the victory. Uh, Jephthah is walking and empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. And in his excitement, so there, there might be some hint that Jephthah knows something is going on bigger than him. In his excitement, he does something totally unexpected. And he does it by speaking directly to God. Now, we haven't heard God's voice in any of this yet. Jephthah speaks directly to God. Here's what he says in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. It's a credible moment. You've got to understand what's happening in the background here. Jephthah's a negotiator. I think he might have sold used cars at one point. He just negotiated successfully with the elders of Gilead. That worked out really well. He wasn't as successful in negotiating with the Ammonites, but we see his nature here. He couldn't make peace with, with the enemies. So now he turns to God and begins negotiating with God. Isn't that what he's doing? We ever do that? Negotiate with God? I mean, that happens in our lives, doesn't it? God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do that for you. God, if you give me this, you know, I'll give you that. God, if you get me out of this situation, I'll give 10% of everything I earn. Or I'll go become a missionary in Africa. Or I'll... I'll join the church and I'll sing in the choir. And I'll, we, we negotiate with God. Jephthah's doing that right now. Of course, 
that's what Jephthah has learned to do because of where he lives in Tob. The, the area where he was living was part of that, their Baal worship, part of their worship of pagan gods was trying to appease their God in such a fashion that they would get their God to do what they wanted Him to do. Isn't that what we do when we negotiate with God? Trying to get Him to do what we want Him to do? Jephthah's just doing what he's been taught. Truth of the matter is, Jephthah's been successful at negotiating. Why didn't he work with God? He made a deal with the, the leaders of Gilead and got their verbal approval. He was not quite as successful in making the deal with the, the Ammonites, but they gave him a verbal response. Still, Jephthah's this negotiator. He's adept at getting his way. Tries to do it with God. Tries to manipulate God into a corner into guaranteeing him the victory that he doesn't seem to realize he already has. And all Jephthah gets from God is silence. Silence. I want you to note something here. Jephthah makes this vow. God never asked him to do it. There's no indication that God said, I need you to make some promise to me in order to get this victory. It is Jephthah's vow. It is Jephthah's idea. And it will soon become Jephthah's burden. Jephthah's about to learn all about making a vow that is apart from the will of God. Now that takes us up to our second incident. And that's Jephthah's victory. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. Now, note this. Look who gets the victory. It's not Jephthah's victory. It's the Lord's victory. Jephthah has been used as a tool by God to defeat the enemy of God's people. And the victory is huge, verse 33. And he struck them from Eror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Kermim, and with a great blow, so that the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. They defeat the entire nation once again. We see Jephthah an outcast, rejected by his own people. He had to leave the village he grew up in. And he rises to this glorious victory and has been enabled to do, watch this, what his own people could not do for themselves. They had to have a Savior come in. They could not save themselves. Jephthah, in this regard, is a Christ figure. Now we see this over and over in the Old Testament. We see these portents, these shadows of Christ. Not perfect. Just like every other model of Christ that we see in Scripture, he's a pale shadow of Christ. He's not an accurate picture of him. Uh, but Jephthah has made this reckless promise. He's made this hollow vow. And now he has this victory, but it's going to come at a cost that he just didn't anticipate. And we're about to see his vexation, the third incident, in verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. I can't even begin to think what Jephthah was feeling at that moment. Have you ever, have you ever had that dawning moment when you realize you made a big mistake? 
I mean that first moment that it, it, it just falls on you that I should not have done that. And your mind starts going a million miles an hour. How am I going to get out of this? It's not what I intended. I didn't want to be here. Oh Lord, get me out of this. This is what's going through Jephthah's mind right now. His daughter comes out. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. I've got to tell you something. There, there are a lot of different interpretations of what's going on here. I don't think that a human being running out of Jephthah's door was totally unexpected. The traditional greeting, in particular in Israel, for a conquering leader, we see this with conquering kings, is for the women to come out and singing and dancing. Jephthah may well have expected a woman to show up. Maybe a couple of women. Now, Jephthah was a Jew. He was a good Jew. And as the story suggests, and as we see in his story, he was a godly man, as godly as Israel got at that point in time. But we have to understand the trajectory of Judges here in order to understand what's going on with Jephthah. Because Judges is a book about the people of God slowly turning away from him and turning towards other gods. And the story of Jephthah is right in the middle of it. So they're worshiping pagan gods. The book starts out with, what, every, everyone was doing everything that seemed right in their own eyes, right? At the end of Judges, we see, we see the, the same thing. Everyone's doing everything right in their own eyes. Matter of fact, you go from Judges to 1 Samuel, and you find out that in 1 Samuel, the people now want a king like everybody else has. So the book is the, the, the downward slope of the people of God. And Jephthah's got a little bit of both of this in him. Very likely that Jephthah thought, I'll make a human sacrifice because that's what the people in my area do to their gods. They make a human sacrifice. And it may be that Jephthah thought that, well, if the human sacrifices satisfy Baal, they'll probably satisfy the true God of Israel as well. So some folks think that Jephthah just assumed that an animal would come out of his house because of the lower floor and they let the animals out in the morning and everything. And maybe that's true too. But I've got to tell you something. Whatever Jephthah thought when he made that vow, he did not think that his daughter would be the first one to come out that door. He was ready to make a, a sacrifice of whoever or whatever came out the door burnt on a funeral pyre. Now you can tell that he didn't think it was his daughter by his reaction. Verse 35. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes. This is extreme grief. This is anguish. Look what he says. Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low and you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take my vow. I don't think we have the proper words to express the anguish that he's gone through. He is absolutely shattered. He is undone. This is not what he planned. This is not what he intended. He was ready to bask in his victory. And though it might have cost somebody else their life, it was all okay with Jephthah as long as it didn't cost him his or his daughter's. Well, 
Why can't he take the vow back? I mean, why, why didn't he just go, Oh, God understands. He knows I didn't intend that. Everybody knows what I mean. All the people in the town know that I didn't mean my daughter. Why didn't he just take it back? We've got to remember that even though Jephthah is a little bit of a hybrid holy man of God and pagan, the culture and the time that he lives in places an incredibly high value on honor. We call this an honor and shame culture. I've got to tell you something. This does not compute in today's Western culture at all. We just don't understand this honor-shame thing. Jephthah's deeply ingrained sense of honor will not allow him to go back on his word. Now, this is the way this is supposed to work. Okay? You make a vow, and uh, you break it. That disgraces your family. The disgrace of your family disgraces your village. The disgrace of your village disgraces your tribe. The disgrace of your tribe disgraces your nation. And in Israel's case, the disgrace of your nation disgraces God. So it's not just a casual, oh, everybody will just understand. The word of God and the image of God is at stake here. And on top of all that, while Jephthah being a Jew... It's apparently not enough of a Jew to understand that God prohibits human sacrifice in Deuteronomy 12 and actually provides a way out in Leviticus chapter 27, a way to redeem the life of somebody who is doomed. The Scriptures say that. We see that the redemption price can be paid for the life of his daughter. So it's sad that the Jews surrounding Jephthah seem to have fallen so far that they're unaware of what their own scriptures say. Do you see why it's so important to read the full counsel of God? Why it's so important for us to know all of the Bible? If these people had been as educated as Jews were supposed to be, they could have went, Jephthah, wait a minute, wait a minute. God doesn't demand human sacrifice. He prohibits it. But now that you're in this tough situation here, and we don't want you to break your vow, but there's a way to redeem your daughter. They didn't know about it. So don't tell me about a history book that has no implications to us today. It's a revelation of the character and nature of God. God redeems those who are lost. They didn't know. That's amazing. I'll tell you what's even more amazing is what the daughter does. Look at this, verse 36. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. She knows what he said. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, This girl knows what Jephthah is going to do to her. A burnt sacrifice. And she understands the honor-shame culture so well that she says, I understand that you can't go back on what you said. I get it. So I'm willing to do this with you so that we don't shame the family, the village, the tribe, the nation, and our God. It's an incredible moment. 
And then she says, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity and my companions. So she's saying, give me two months. Give me two months to mourn what is about to happen with my friends. Now, when she talks about weeping for her virginity, she's reminding her father the implications go far beyond just him and her because she's the last one in his lineage. His family disappears if she disappears. Dad, you made this vow, and we both got to do it, but this is the end of us as a family. And now Jephthah can't escape the shame that's being brought on his village. His family is God. So Jephthah, you know, at this point in the story, I want Jephthah to go, oh, it's okay, I'll let them kill me. I mean, wouldn't that be beautiful? I'll let them burn me because I made this silly vow. Look, look what Jephthah does in verse 38. He says, Go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. He did it. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. There are some commentators that say that Jephthah never intended to sacrifice anybody. That what he was going to do was to dedicate whoever came out the door to service in the temple. Kind of the same way Samuel comes up. I got to tell you something. I don't buy it. Nobody's coming up with an observance for four days in perpetuity for somebody who goes to work at the church. This girl is grieving over the loss. Her friends are grieving over the loss. And the nation observes the loss. Now the nation understands why. They get the whole honor-shame thing. Still they see this as a tragedy. See, Jephthah was willing to sacrifice to get his way. But he never counted on sacrificing something so precious. Understand this. God is not in this sacrifice. He's silent, but he never tells Jephthah to do this. There's no indication that Jephthah is led by the Spirit. God neither prescribes his sacrifice, nor does he condone it. Yet, he remains silent. And Jephthah is left to suffer the consequences of his own actions. Three pretty incredible incidents in Jephthah's life, isn't it? We got this vow. Jephthah feels he has to manipulate God. Feels like he's got to make sure that God is going to be faithful to his promises. If he had known his scriptures, he would have known that God is faithful to his promises. And he didn't have to put demands on him or or conditions on him. He's totally unaware of how faithful God is. Again, this is why we need to read our entire Bible. 
So that not so that we understand who we are, but so that we understand who God is, whose image we are being conformed into, whose shape we are being molded into, whose son we are becoming more and more one with. We saw Jephthah's victory. God enables Jephthah to, to do this miraculous, supernatural defeat of the Ammonites. And then we saw Jephthah's vexation. Jephthah is so totally unaware of God's Word that he feels like he's got to follow through on this unscriptural, ungodly promise. And Jephthah pays an extremely high earthly price for his actions. So we can see that there are consequences for our earthly actions. We can see that. This is tragic, but we see that here. And, but but this, is, this is an appalling story. I told you it was hard. And anybody who's ever been a parent has a little bit of a knot in their stomach right now because of what just happened here. We can't imagine going through this. Especially today. That just shows how far separated we have become from that honor-shame culture. While Jephthah was willing to sacrifice his daughter to keep his word, we would just write this off as, just don't do it, Jephthah. God is gracious. God is kind. He'll forgive you. Just don't do it. This doesn't make any sense. We would write it off as as something that was too impulsive, too hastily made, not thought through. We would be able to say, but that's not what I meant. Everybody understands not what I meant. Let's go on with our lives. So we have to ask ourselves, What is our word worth? What is our word worth? What does it mean when we make a promise? How good are we at keeping our promises? That's a practical lesson from this. Amen? We can carry that away from us. We've got to be careful what we say. But then there's another lesson. You know, we've got to be careful what we promise. Our culture doesn't really relate well to this honor-shame thing. I, I, I think that's a little bit of a loss for us. Really. Because we're called to be representatives of a faithful, true, and unchanging God. One who, who makes good on all of His promises. And we have to ask ourselves, does our speech, do our words, do our actions, do our promises reflect the faithfulness of God? But there's an even bigger lesson that we can learn here about the character and nature of God. And it begins with that question that we started with. What what are you willing to sacrifice? Now, my two guys in Chicago kept up their conversation and it moved on from the people of Ukraine to the price of gas. And the guy who said, I'm willing to sacrifice everything, said, I will not pay that high price of gas. That's That's the government's problem. It's not my problem. So he's willing to sacrifice everything until it costs him something. I don't mean to judge the guy. I've had those same thoughts myself. Okay, So I have to ask myself, what am I willing to sacrifice? You see, the guy in Chicago wanted justice. We all want that. But he wanted as long as it didn't cost him anything. We'll take a look at Jephthah's case. It's an extreme one. 
We're never going to be called upon to sacrifice our children. God didn't call Jephthah to do that. But Jephthah wanted to keep his promise. And it says a lot about us that we see that as a bad thing. We see that as a bad thing. Yet, it should cause us to reconsider what making a sacrifice means. Now, there are a lot of people that tell you, you don't got to do anything. God loves you. You're not called, don't, don't let anybody put things on you. That's legalism, blah, 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 blah. But here's what Paul has to say about this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we can kind of graze over that. But what Paul is saying is we need to sacrifice everything we are, everything we have, in worship to God. And, and when, when we get saved, you, those of you that have been walking with the Lord for a while, those of you that have confessed your sins, those of you that have repented and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know that there are times in your life where God will stretch you. He will challenge you. God is constantly asking us, what are you willing to do to be closer to me? What are you willing to do to walk in a manner worthy of the high and holy calling that I've placed upon you? Who is at the center of your universe? You or me? Are you willing to give up your comfort? Are you willing to give up your money? Are you giving, giving up your home for the sake of me, for the sake of my word? What is more precious to you than your Lord and Savior? It's a valid question. I find it ironic that the world is appalled at this story about Jephthah. How could, why kind of God would I mean, it's just not understanding the passage. But the world is not so appalled at the creator of the universe sacrificing his only son for our welfare. That doesn't strike them as so shocking. Jephthah was willing to give everything up to keep his word. He's a shadow. He's a shadow of our Father in heaven who is perfect and blameless and faithful and true to his word. So true to his word that he gave up his only son so that you and I could be free. God is willing to make that sacrifice. The story of Jephthah asks us, what are we willing to sacrifice? Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We confess that this is a difficult passage, Father. Not so difficult to understand, but difficult for us to process. But as we look deeper and deeper into the story of Jephthah, we see more and more of you. We see the consequences of human decisions made apart from you. Father, we know you're not calling us to that, but calling us to a high level of holiness and a level of personal sacrifice that we need to evaluate on a daily basis. We pray by the presence and power of your Spirit, Father, 
you would guide us in making those decisions. And Father, give us the peace to be able to make them in your rest. We pray this in our name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now, Father, we pray that you would bless our fellowship, bless the hands that have worked so hard to prepare this feast. Lord, we lift them up to you. We give you thanks for the workers behind the scenes, Lord, and we give you a sense of appreciation for all you're doing for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. And there's one more thing. The ladies downstairs said, nobody go down and leave everything for Pastor John. Is that what you just said? No. If you're visiting with us, we'd love to have you join us downstairs. We've got plenty of food. Thank you. Thank you. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Click on the like button below, that little thumbs up icon. If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd be blessed by that. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter at WBFVA. And we're also on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on giving and follow the links from there. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in historic downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.